，鬼岛之音。Ghost Island Media。Hi, I'm Nature Nate, and this is a special episode. Now, normally we're an environmental podcast that talks about sustainability, but today we're a book review podcast that's reviewing a new work written by Jessica J. Lee, titled "Two Trees Make a Forest." If you're here for sustainability science, well, good news. To protect our planet, we need to understand it in an emotional level, and a vital way of doing that is through literature. For this episode, I spoke with Jessica J. Lee, the author of the book. Jessica is a British Canadian Taiwanese author, an environmental historian based in Berlin. She also has a cool island on Animal Crossing. I'll just let her describe her book now. So, Two Trees Make a Forest. It's sort of a hybrid work of nature writing and biography, and so it follows me, sort of trying to trace my grandparents' story and trying to sort of piece together our connection to Taiwan. Concurrent with that, it's an exploration of landscape in Taiwan, of environmental history. Before we get on to the rest of our conversation, I just wanted to say I really liked this book because it spoke to me viscerally, both as an immigrant to a new country, but also as a natural history book. Most nature writing worships nature, but ignores the people who live in those natural systems. Two trees make a forest breaks that mold and follows not just one woman's journey, but a family's journey through time and place, culture, and geography. So yeah, so we can just get started. So, how are you? Have you had a chance to to get into nature lately? Have you been able to get outside? Yeah, it's been okay. I've been getting outside. We got a dog last year, which is really motivating in terms of like actually getting outside every day. But in recent weeks, things have relaxed here in Germany a lot, so I've been able to cycle out into the countryside and go swimming in lakes and walking in forests. Let's say we're at a cocktail party. Let's say the coronavirus has ended. How do you introduce yourself? I tend to sort of use the shorthand of nature writer to explain what I do. But yeah, I, I'm a writer. I'm an author and an environmental historian, and I publish a journal. I'm the founding editor of the Willow Herb Review, which is a literary journal. So for someone who doesn't know. What is nature writing? I write about nature, but I guess I write in a very environmental, economic sense. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends where you're from. My context for nature writing and the sort of publishing community I work with is primarily in Britain. And British nature writing in the past sort of twenty years, there's been this revival of creative nonfiction, very first person, sometimes memoirish accounts of of journeys in in the natural world and with non-human nature. But it draws this sort of really deep connection to, you know, romanticism and to ideas from 200 years ago. I know in Taiwan,、uh, nature writing is actually a, a huge genre. It's one of the biggest in Taiwan publishing, which I think is so exciting. But yeah, there's there's a huge number of writers in Taiwan, like Liu Kaohsiung, who do this kind of work. Yeah, I think I'm most familiar with the man with the compound eyes. Wu Mingyi. That's Wu Mingyi. Wu, Wu Mingyi.、Yeah. Okay. Wu Mingyi is one of my favorite writers, and I would really love it if more of his nature writing was translated into English. So far, only his novels have been. So. Okay. In in the book, what I found really interesting is that you know I I would normally read a book, a nature book, maybe like a Thoreau or Aldo Leopold or Rachel Carson, something like that. But this book also combines your own personal family history. I mean, you could have written like a sort of your family's journey as a book. You could have written a natural history book. Why did you want to combine them, and, and also with your own personal journey? In terms of okay, why I wouldn't write just sort of a natural history book outright? I think partly because one of the most important things for me in this book is my positioning, which is that I come to this not as someone who grew up in Taiwan, but as my family is from there. 
and that position of being an outsider but not fully being an outsider and searching for that sense of belonging is actually really important, I think. And in terms of the family history, I had actually tried for many years to write my grandparents' story just as as a novel, as sort of biography. I realized that I didn't really have a way into the story mm. and when I really did sit down, you know, we found these sort of memoirs that my grandfather had written that were about his life and they were written in in Chinese. I couldn't read them properly. I had to get them professionally translated. Um, my mom helped sort of annotate them so I could make sense of them because he'd written them sort of when he was developing Alzheimer's. And they didn't always make sense. They repeated things or they left things out. And, you know, I always come back to this idea that as someone who trained in environmental history, trained in landscape, and you stick me in, you know, a field in England, I can tell you what everything is. I can tell you what's going on there. I couldn't do that in Taiwan. I remember one of the first times I, I went back to Taiwan as an adult with my mom. I couldn't do that, but I realized she could. She would look around and say, oh, and this plant, which your your grandfather taught me the name of when I was a child, and this and that. And it felt really like, oh, this is a language gap. Mm. You know, these are the sort of cultural gaps um, and knowledge gaps that we carry. That gap was was the story in a way. And that's something that you write about as well, sort of how language plays into the way we think about nature. Mm -hmm. And you start the book talking about the character Dao, right, which is island, which is a bird Mm -hmm. on top of a mountain. I guess, why did you start with that character? Why did you start with mountains and islands? I wanted to be able to really bring the setting to life immediately for readers. Mm. A lot of the readers who pick up this book may never have been to Taiwan. So, you know, that we're on an island and that there are mountains, but also quite literally to sort of enroll this theme of language and of gaps in translation, because words we have in English for island, actually, they just don't have the same sort of historical lineage and and etymology as a word in, in Mandarin or in Taiwanese. It's a completely different sort of idea built into the word. And so I really wanted to highlight that because, you know, language and my own sort of longing to be better at Mandarin is it's a big theme of the book. Yeah, I mean, I really appreciate well, first of all, I really appreciate that there's a, a book about Taiwan's nature because I've lived here for five years. It's kind of become the focus of my life, but I very rarely see it written about or talked about. So it's really refreshing to have a nature book about that and to also talk about the importance of traditional characters and how they have all these layered meanings. I mean, obviously, you know, English can have that too, but you have to dig into it. It's not like this immediate visual representation. Exactly. Were there any other characters that kind of really made you think deeply about this connection between language and nature? Oh, yeah. I mean, the character for Forrest, which is, you know, it's it's part of the title of the book, essentially, uh, which all of my Chinese speaking friends like to make fun of me for. They're like, Jessica, that's a very beginner's Chinese pun <laughs> that you've basically built into your book title. You're a real loser. <laughs> I think Two Trees Make a Forest is a great title, but I don't think it's just too basic. You know, I mean, you dropped out of Chinese school and then you came back into it. Was there a specific moment with your grandparents? Was there something that made you want to kind of get back into this part of your background and your lineage? Yeah, so I, let me think, I moved to Germany in 2014, and there was a point about a year after that where I realized I spoke German quite well, and I basically panicked because I was like, oh, I speak German better than I've ever been able to speak Mandarin. And that was actually, I don't know how to, I can't really describe how upsetting that was for me. It was a really strange sort of moment um, because I I was really concerned with the fact that, you know, like I had never been able to fully communicate with my grandparents. But also I started to feel really strange about the fact that 
I really only ever communicated with my mother in her second language, in English. And, you know, she would speak to me in Mandarin. And when I was growing up, I would always answer her in English. And I, I guess it took me a really long time to see sort of the, the issues in that dynamic. Mm. And so how did you feel when you when you first came to Taiwan, when you like stepped off the plane and there was that rush of humid air? Like, did it feel exciting or strange or familiar or? Um, I mean, I, I think it felt like... I don't know, a bit like deja vu or like a bit dreamlike for me because I hadn't been back, you know, I, I had been in Taiwan as a baby, as a small child, but I hadn't been back since. So when I when I first went back to Taiwan, I felt very watchful. I was very much just like taking everything in. And then I think came that first moment where I was like, oh, I need to speak Mandarin right now to someone who is not my mother, which basically had never happened in my life. I had only ever spoken Mandarin with my mother. And I was like, oh, I'm actually terrible at this. <laughs> There's a huge generosity, though, I think, if you're learning in Taiwan, which I, I do appreciate. People do make an effort to understand you. They don't necessarily correct you all the time, which I will say, like, having lived in Germany for many years is not the case here. In Taiwan, yeah, they, they do make an effort, which is really interesting because Taiwan itself, like this island, is extremely inhospitable. And you, you bring that up in your book about, like, the earthquakes, the typhoons, the lava, the landslides, uncertain political nature. You know, Taiwan is a place that changes and is kind of... there's nasty bugs and like giant wasps. But it seems like it should be inhospitable. And I think what fascinates me about it is the constant work of making a good life in a place that is sort of framed by so much uncertainty. But I also just think it's, I don't know, there's kind of this magic in the ways in which communities have, I guess, really endured despite so much, uh, you know, in terms of colonialism, in terms of natural disasters, in terms of just the sort of difficulty of the terrain sometimes in, you know, over the past, what, four or five hundred years since colonialism began in Taiwan, I think. Yeah. yeah, it's really remarkable to me how much has endured and how much people have really fought for for Taiwanese identity and Taiwanese communities. Yeah. Colonialism is a really it's always, you know, a strange and complicated subject in any country. I feel like in Taiwan, there's even more layers. Right. And you, you talk about in your book. It's really complicated. Like I go to the botanical garden by my house and I walked around and I started to realize that all the people in the botanical garden, all the statues and busts were Japanese. Yeah, because in Taiwan, a lot of the sort of forestry centers across Taiwan, those were brought in under Japanese rule in the early 20th century. So yeah, this is one of those things I really wanted to write about, particularly for an English language audience, because I think there's not a lot of awareness of the complexity mm. of sort of colonial power in Taiwan, but also... I think for a lot of English language or Western readers, they come to texts like this with this attitude of like, okay, colonialism is when Britain goes abroad and colonizes a place, and that's what that is. But in Taiwan, I think you have this really, I think, clear example of intra-Asian colonialism. You have mm. China in the 1600s and 1700s. You have the post-1949 and post-1945 wave of people coming from China, like my grandparents. Right. So, I mean, all of those things are very nuanced, and I think it's not that well understood outside of the Taiwanese context. So that was really important for me to write about and to sort of bring to light the many layers of power, but also that it's sometimes informal, right? So mm. I write a lot about colonial botanists from the UK or elsewhere in Europe coming to Taiwan and 
studying plants and studying animals and naming them. And that is a form of sort of colonial power, right? Even、yeah. if they were not the official rulers here. The fact that there are Taiwanese things that are named after foreigners who never ever set foot in Taiwan, that is a remarkable and powerful statement, I think. In your book, you talk about how Taiwan has a huge percentage of endemic species, and it's kind of on par with like Madagascar and Galapagos. I remember when I was a kid, I'd watch Discovery Channel or Animal Planet, Amazon, Madagascar, you know, Galapagos. I never heard about Taiwan until way later in my life. So, what was your sense as someone who's read a lot of nature writing? Is is there a gap too about Taiwan itself? Yeah, I mean, this place is a really rich, biodiverse. Island, and there's not that many documentaries. Yeah, I mean, I think this is partly again a problem of worldviews and perspectives, right? Like in Taiwan, as I said, nature writing is huge and it's very rich. There are so many amazing nature documentaries that are within the Taiwanese market or within the East Asian market, right?、Mm. But when it comes to books in English, aside from academic texts, there's really not a lot besides sort of. Generic travel books, and so it was sort of important to me to write about the space in that way. And yeah, I mean, I, I didn't realize the degree of biodiversity, you know, in Taiwan until I really started working on this book, and that was really significant、mm. to me because I feel like my mom had always said when I was growing up, "Oh, Taiwan, you know, the nature is so much better there. It's so much more, <laughs> you know, complex. There's just so much more." But actually, when you sit down and look at it, it's like, how is it that this hasn't been addressed more? It, it's a major site for. The history of botany, actually.、Hmm. So that was really interesting to me to come into it from that sort of historical angle to look at how desirable it was for people to be doing sort of field surveys in Taiwan, but also how I think illustrative Taiwan can be in terms of understanding. You know, I've been reading recently a lot about the paper mulberry tree and the ways in which tracking the movement of the paper mulberry tree across、hmm. Austronesia is deeply linked to how we understand the movement of indigenous people. Through the South Pacific, and how you know by tracking、mm. sort of genetic changes in that tree as it as it grows across the South Pacific region, it actually tells you about the way people migrated. Interesting.、And、there's so many little stories like that that I just think are not well known in English. This is like the out of Formosa、yeah. theory, right? Where people think that Austronesians moved from China to Taiwan and then yeah, and then spread, spread all the way southeast from there. But yeah, I mean that's a story that again is tied up with plants, and that that theory is built on studies of plants,、mm. partially st- studies of language also, but studies of plants and and the genetic data on this particular tree, the paper mulberry tree. Right. Even looking at these old historical travel logs of botanists, that kind of stuff fascinates me because it's sort of rich with. I think a lot of problematic worldviews and and a lot of how do I put it, this sort of positioning of Taiwan as this like Orientalized and dangerous and exotic other like all of that I think is, it's really really difficult to read because yeah it's hurtful in in many ways but it's also you know product of its time, but being able to study those texts and say like actually how is it that we don't speak about Taiwan in the same way as other. Rich areas of biodiversity worldwide, and I think it's partly to do with you know the way in which Taiwan is recognized internationally on a conservation level. Right. You know, when when we start talking about recognition in Taiwan, it all becomes very political. Yeah. But yeah. I think, yeah, I mean, for me, it was really, it was really exciting to delve into that and to realize actually all that stuff my mom was saying, like, oh, it's so rich and there are so many more plants, and I, you know, <laughs> she always really missed that. It's really well founded and. Now I feel like I can connect with what she was saying, like my entire childhood, and I can really have that conversation with her. 
All right, we're going to take a break from our interview with Jessica about her new book, Two Trees Make a Forest. Again, it's coming out in the U.S. on August 4th. For U.S.-based listeners, you can get it on bookshop.org. It's a good vendor that supports indie bookshops. For our listeners in Australia, actually all the Commonwealth, you can get it on Virago Books, except for Canada. Sorry, Canada. For Taiwan, you can get it as Leet, Elite Chinping, as Light. That store, that store, that bookstore in Taiwan, you can get it there. And we're back in the second half with our conversation with Jessica Lee from her book, Two Trees Make a Forest. There's uh, one part of, towards the end of your book where you sort of draw parallels between nature and ecology and culture. And, and I thought it was really interesting. You said what we believe to be culture is only ever a fragment of the natural world. We've sectioned off and closed pearl-like for posterity. And so what, what I kind of took away from that was sort of uh, – I don't know if you've read David Abram's Spell of the Sensuous, mm-hmm. how humans are just connected to nature. And when we try and freeze it and preserve it and catalog it, we kind of kill it and we kind of also kill ourselves is that kind of what I'm picking up from the themes here, or was there... For me, it's really important that we have a sort of historic understanding as well of this division between nature and culture, because it's a culturally produced division, right? Right, right. It's not something that exists already. Mm. It's like, actually, humans are also part of nature, and then if we want to speak about animals, we want to speak about plants, we want to speak about rocks and geology and other things, then what we're going to be talking about is is non-human nature. Yeah, and Taiwan is a place that makes you really confront that, because in California, I can go out to like a national park, and there's probably not people living there, and it's visually, you would think it's pristine. But that's never really the case in Taiwan. And you bring up a funny example of people hiking and blasting music and wearing bright colors and and cooking food. They're experiencing nature, but it's kind of in in a different way and sort of like this embedded way. Whereas I feel like a Western sense of nature, it's like, oh, it's the silence. We have to be quiet in nature. I mean, I think there's you know, there's just a lot of different modes for how we enjoy nature. And I, I do think like a lot of what we're taught originally about where nature belongs and how to appreciate it is predicated on this idea of, say, going to a national park. And, you know, when we want to position the landscape as wilderness, as untouched, pristine wilderness in that way, that's a huge erasure in itself, right? right. Like we both come from countries which are essentially stolen land. Right. You know, this was land that was occupied by indigenous people, much like Taiwan. Yeah. And so when we position our our appreciation of the landscape as this like, oh, untouched, pristine place that we must sort of treat in this hallowed way, right? Like we're going to church. I think think in a way there are some problems with that idea, obviously. Yeah. We need to have a spaciousness for all the different ways of enjoying. And, you know, I write about it specifically in Taiwan because that tendency that is so written into me became very apparent to me when I would go hiking in Taiwan because... Mm. I felt a little bit torn sometimes between my own impulse, which is just to sort of like look at all the details. You know, I'm always stopping and like looking at plants on the ground and I'm not good if you are in a rush, put it that way. <laughs> but then I also do sometimes feel like, oh, I really need to like, I need to be a serious hiker, right? I, I come into it with all these sort of culturally informed ideas about what it means to climb a mountain. So I think all of that is in the back of my mind. And then when I meet these hiking groups that are just chilling and they're like listening to... <laughs> to pop music and just blasting music sometimes <laughs> yeah and they're having so much fun I, I feel like that's it's illuminating for me because it does sort of unpack my own seriousness and mm. the sort of ridiculous tropes that I bring into hiking right like where I'm like oh I must look a certain way and I must do these certain things which 
have I just been shaped by reading a lot of like male mountain climbing literature or like, what is it? Right. <laughs> yeah. So, it's like, what are they doing out here? Or e- even trails, right? A lot of trails in Taiwan will be stairs and planks and like some conservationists would say are like destructive and artificial, but in some ways it lets people access nature. Exactly. Right. Like there's this ability to connect. And I, you know, my mom and I talk about this a lot because my mom, where she lives, you know, she lives in Southern Ontario right now in Canada and no one she knows goes hiking or like walks up a mountain every day. And, Mm. you know, when we're in Taipei, we just, you know, we'll pop up Elephant Mountain in the morning and have a stroll and come back down. And she's like, this, the fact that this can be so embedded in daily life is actually really powerful because it's not something that is the case for many other people in other parts of the world. Yeah. So I think that's, it's something really special in Taiwan. And the fact that there is such accessibility of the trails, you know, it does also mean there needs to be, I think, a lot of structure in place to teach people how to properly manage and take their waste away and all of these things. But I don't know, it's really remarkable compared to other places where it's just so inaccessible to get into mountains or to get into the forest. But Taiwan also does have some pretty inaccessible hikes because, you know, you really do hike and do some heavy hikes. Like I think there was one where with the flooded forest and you really go out there. Was there like a specific hike that was really memorable or really Yeah, I think one of the first hikes I did by myself, I didn't think was going to be a big deal. And I just went and did it. And it was a really big lesson for me. And I write about it in the book. It was just near near Sun Moon Lake. There's just like a little trail. It's nothing or it shouldn't seem like it's that big a deal. But it does have like a huge jump in elevation in a very short distance. And Mm. it's it's a very steep trail and it's a very wooded trail. And I sort of did this thinking it was not a big deal by myself. And I had a really terrible time and I was really scared and I would never, ever do it again. It was like a real lesson to me. I'm really lucky. I shouldn't have done that. But yeah, on that one hike I I write about in the book, I got chased by a monkey and it was really scary. Yeah. Monkeys are scary. People don't talk about this enough. You know, then if you smile, that's like an aggressive stance to a, a monkey and they can... I don't know. I was I'm scared of monkeys. I mean, it was a bit it was a bit extreme and I still don't really understand why it was chasing me because I didn't have any food on me at the time and I was just walking down the trail, but it was like really, and I looked it up afterwards. I looked up different sort of territorial calls and I was like, oh, wow, that was like a real like get out of my space situation from this macaque. And so, yeah, you got to respect nature if it chases you. Yeah. So that was uh, illustrative to me, I think. And I learned a lot. But when we went to the forest, for example, which is just sort of north of Alishan, that was one where I sort of just organized it myself. And as I mentioned, my Mandarin's not amazing. And I don't live in Taiwan. So, you know, for me, when I'm in Taiwan, I'm there for a few months at a time sometimes, and I can sort of immerse myself. But, you know, I'm not a local by any means. And so it was really Mm. interesting to sort of figure out how to coordinate those things, figure out how to get permits from the police and all these little things that you need to do, Mm. right? I think in one part in your book, you said uh, foreign botany was built on the backs of local labor. Yeah. Something like that. I mean, so that was really drawn from a specific text. So I was looking at the travelogues in Taiwan of uh, Henry Elwes, and he was a British botanist. And he traveled through Alishan in particular with sort of a troop of local guides and indigenous guides. And, you know, they, how do I put it? He writes very vividly of moments where the locals would sort of scramble up trees to grab plant samples for him to study. And it's just like the tone in that writing, I think is, it's really kind of disturbing when you look at it from a present perspective. I mean, also from, I think, you know, there's just no excuse for that even historically. But when you look at the way in which, 
you know, he's sort of positioned as this like really significant figure in the history of botany worldwide. But actually, who's doing the work, right? And and locals, right. he writes about locals telling him the names for things, but those names don't really get recorded. Yeah, it's it's a strange text in that way, and that it's not it's not a distant text. That text was from like 1912. So <laughs> yeah, that's that's painfully recent. Right? I mean, I, I just I was reading it, and it was cringy. And then I also, you know, have to kind of look at myself as as a foreign researcher in Taiwan who. You know, I, I work with Taiwanese people, but I, I don't ever want to feel like it's this extractive process because that was a very real history very recently. And, and I mean, it's a continuing history. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a present day. But this is where I think, you know, I, I was also really conscious of this when writing the book because I'm not a Taiwanese citizen. Um, my mom is, but, you know, I don't I don't come to it completely neutral. I'm still an incomer in a way. And so it was that was part of the reason why I said, like, being able to position my family's story and my connection and my right to write about a certain place was really important because it's not a given, right? Mm. But I think this is the thing. It's like, if you can come into this work and be sort of hyper-conscious of your position while doing it, I think it makes our work better very often. Yeah. And your grandparents were both born in China and then after the Civil War, they immigrated to Taiwan. Did you consider going to China for this book too or you wanted to make it more about the Taiwan part of their yeah. experience? Because you do talk about China and Nanjing and your grandmother growing up there. Um, yeah, I did, I did think about it initially, but I also realized one of the things I say in the book is that the China my grandparents grew up in, it no longer exists. Mm. But I was also sort of, I think, as I was writing this book, hyper aware of political context and the fact that I was writing a book about Taiwan in which I treat Taiwan as an independent nation, as its own entity in its own right was significant and probably would have precluded my ability to really engage in China in a meaningful way as, as a writer, even from the standpoint of like getting into the country. Were you worried about writing a book about Taiwan? Because I, you know, I live in Taiwan now. I work at a think tank that does economic research. I, I don't really worry that much anymore about like Taiwan as a country because you live there. Yeah, yeah I live there. It's, it obviously is. It's kind of too far gone. Was that was that like a consideration that you had when you're starting to write the book? Or I mean, for me, it was never a consideration that Taiwan would ever be anything other than a country, and that was really important to me. Mm. But I think that made my decision for me in terms of where the focus would be in this book. And also then, yeah, I, you know, I've taken legal advice on whether or not, like when I was working on it, if I wanted to go and do some of the work in China, and I was advised very, very clearly not to. Particularly in, in the past sort of few years, things have been a bit heightened for writers working on Taiwan in mainland China. And so I was advised to be cautious, and uh, so I was. And <laughs> so yeah, the book, you know, it really revolves around Taiwan. And I didn't, I didn't want to detract from that story because I think it's, it really is at the heart of my family's, my family's past, right? So it's really important. You know, my, and my grandparents, they never went back to China, even after right. they could, right? Like they could have traveled back, but they didn't. And I think that's significant. Yeah. I mean, Taiwan was, was home for them too. I mean, that's, as I was reading your book, I did, that kind of helped me think about places as this like time, culture, contextual experience, uh, rather than just a physical set of coordinates on a map. Mm-hmm. It's really strange to think about, you mentioned the international like political context, how even like the IUCN or these kind mm -hmm. of large biodiversity bodies have never had a meeting in Taiwan. And Taiwan oh, well, is... Oh, no, because on their websites, it's listed as Taiwan province of China. Yeah. And that's a... <laughs> yeah. Not to be too inflammatory here, but, you know, it really is, it's something to consider 
when doing this kind of research, you you do come across that. And there's a lot of, you know, moments where you're like, okay, I'm reading this sort of flora of Taiwan, historic flora of Taiwan. And then there are equivalent text floras of China and they count Taiwan. And and so, you know, when you mm. move when you move between these different registers, I think there's something that takes place moving between each of those spaces. Just like one micro example, there's like the the white dolphin, right? Like the Chinese white dolphin. Mm-hmm. And if you count the total Chinese white dolphin population, there's something like 20,000 across China, Hong Kong, Taiwan. But if you look at just the Taiwan population, there's only 60. Now, if that's a Chinese white dolphin, then it's not really that threatened. It's it's okay. But if it's a specific Taiwan species, then it's critically endangered. So it's really interesting to me how yeah, naming, it comes back to naming, it comes back to these kind of political decisions, these colonial political decisions. Is there anything else that you want to talk about your book that I like missed? Because yeah. I think what I'm going to take away from the book is going to be really different than someone who has kind of this shared Taiwanese background. I'm ultimately like a, a foreign sort of transplant here, which different parts of the book resonated with me because they were familiar experiences, but it's still different for, yeah. for someone else. But I think that's what makes the book interesting for so not just for you know nature enthusiasts or taiwan enthusiasts but a lot of different people could take out different elements and incorporate that it is infused with a lot of different levels of personal story i think and that was sort of the idea but i also i you know when i wrote it i really i had in mind readers like me like i i have a whole sort of group of friends of half taiwanese or half chinese born overseas mm. women that i know it's something we've talked about a lot over recent years, just that feeling of disconnection, of wanting to know more, of failing to know more sometimes, and wanting to, I guess, find some way of belonging to these past places for us, right? Or past places mm. in our families. And that was really sort of who I had in mind when I wrote this book, right? I wanted I wanted someone like me who was feeling like they wish they had connected sooner to find a way in. Was there something you really like wanted people to know about Taiwan? Was there something you maybe couldn't fit in the book Ooh, that you would have. That's interesting. It made me really want to dig deeper into Taiwan's natural history because I've just sort of been looking at coral, writing about, I write about trash, but I haven't really like done the hard work, I would say, of digging into the kind of Taiwan's natural history. So I, it made me realize I have my own progress to make. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, the, writing the book, you know, beyond the sort of personal sort of family and and my own sort of internal motivations, one of the things I really had in mind was the fact that in the sort of English language genre of nature writing and in travel writing in particular, we just haven't seen enough unpacking of sort of colonial viewpoints, but also of of who the narrator might be. And mm-hmm. so it was really important for me to write a book in which I was sort of an insider outsider you know, don't fully belong, but sort of have some kind of claim to belonging. That was a really important position for me to enroll. And to be able to have a story in in nature writing in particular, that was a story about migration and about connection to landscapes that are, I think, really beyond the borders of what we commonly see in English language nature writing. Like in, in British nature writing, for example, mm. you know, it's very preoccupied with Britain. And I understand why that is and why that's significant. And yes, there should be work that is done very locally. I think one of the things I really wanted to to bring to bear is this idea that for people whose families are are immigrants and have moved all over the world, I mean, in just one generation, we've had like three continents in my family's history. Hmm. And that seems sort of significant to me. And we need to be able to hold space for that in 
in our perspectives of like what nature writing can be, what travel writing can be, um, that those stories are a part of that as well. And that, you know, it's not about coming to, say, a place like Taiwan as necessarily like as a travel writer, as a foreign travel writer and seeing it as like this great exploration of of an exotic landscape, right. right? Like I don't, we don't need more books like that. Yeah. But for me, you know, being able to infuse this sense of like home, of migration, of I guess connection, that was really important. So I really hope it resonates with readers on that level in a way in terms of maybe just asking what what this kind of writing could be in the future and, and could we have more voices like that? I certainly hope so because I've read enough white men talking about God Isaac. It's good that you're opening it up. You're creating more space. Thank you. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Jessica. Happily, thank um, you for and, me. and good luck with the launch of your book. We'll put a link to the book. We'll link to it. We'll shout it out. I loved it. And I think listeners to this podcast will enjoy it too. Thank you so much. So thank you. I'm Nature Nate, and this has been the Waste Not, Why Not podcast recorded in Future Ward, a co-working space in Taipei, Taiwan. Do you have a question for us? Email your voice recording at ask at wastenotwhynot.com. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or if you listen on another app, we don't judge you. Give us a good rating. Sign up to our newsletter. Support us on Patreon. We are Waste Not, Why Not on Substack and Patreon and Waste Not Pod on Twitter. This has been a Ghost Island Media production. This episode was produced by Emily Y. Wu and myself, Nature Nate, edited by Yu Chun Lai, brand designed by Thomas Lee. Special thanks to Catapult and Jessica for reaching out to us. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. What are some more monkey sounds? Let me try and like mimic a macaque call. No one's gonna think that's no one's gonna think that's a monkey. <laughs>